Welcome to another episode of Burritos, Breaks, and Flies. This episode, we are joined by Dylan Aligre. He's the downstream project manager uh, up in Oregon specializing in salmon and steelhead in the Columbia watershed area. So this one will be pretty interesting. We'll talk about the salmon and steelhead up there. We'll do a little bit of correlation on how those fish have some similarities to our famed and fabled Lahontan cutthroat trout in Pyramid Lake. Uh, and we'll talk about a little bit about some of the Nevada fisheries he grew up on. So kind of a hometown revisit with an out-of-town uh, little trip to see what the salmon and steelhead fisheries are like up there. So it's an awesome one. And again, thanks to our supporters, uh, Mystic Fly Rods, Adams Built Fishing, Monic Fly Lines, and Myoderm. We'll learn more about that. we got an upcoming episode on that. Sweet stuff and Battleborn Beer. So stay tuned, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. All right, and welcome to another episode of Burritos, Breaks, and Flies. And I got my co-host with me, Taylor, a.k.a. the prodigy slash his self-proclaimed nickname, T-Balls, Brune. Not the prodigy, but yeah, how's it going, everybody? <laughs> great. <laughs> and we got, a, we got a great guest on board uh, coming to us all the way from Oregon. Yes, we're crossing state lines and not crossing into California because we have a lot of California and Nevada-specific podcasts, but we're going a little bit north into Oregon, um, and our special guest today is Dylan Aligre. Thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. Awesome. Awesome. And we got a clear connection, unlike we did last night. Yes. That was a complete disaster. <clears throat> Great podcast, but- No smoking today. There's no smoke. We got a good connection, so everything should be all right, Dylan. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it holds. So, so Dylan's coming to from us. He's a uh, he is a Nevada native. He grew up in Fallon, and he's part of the Lahontan Triangle, which includes Taylor and the Buckmaster and the Isbister. There's all these Fallon Sounds guys. Like a square. It well, you can <laughs> you can take a position anywhere along the triangle. This fit yeah. in the triangle, yeah. So, and we have Dylan on board, so we'll talk a little bit about his local experience in Nevada. He grew up on some of our home waters, like Pyramid Lake and Truckee River, and probably all kinds of other stuff that we'll hear about. So that's kind of cool. He's got the local touch here, which we appreciate, but he took his skill set uh, up to Oregon and is currently working uh, with the steelhead and uh, salmon fisheries um, and is currently a downstream project manager. Um, the title is actually official longer than that, but... <laughs> It sounds like he does some cool work up there with the steelhead and salmon, which is something that we admire down here, you know, based off the fisheries, you know, we fish, um, steelhead and salmon are pretty cool. And the closest that we get to is our, is our LCTs and pyramid. So, um, so with that being said, um, then he does that work with, you know, various state and private entities up there. So you're kind of all over the place, aren't you Dylan? 
Yeah, I am. A, you know, kind of the nature of this field. You bounce around quite a bit until you find a spot to land for a few years and then on to the next project. Right on. Well, why don't you give us a quick little background on yourself? T- tell us a little bit about your background growing up here and, and how you got up to Oregon and, and what you're doing now up there. Sure. So, as you mentioned earlier, I grew up in Fallon, ran around with a lot of the guys you mentioned. I was pretty good friends with Taylor here and Hayden Buckmaster. Um, so, yeah, I, I grew up on a dairy farm in town and I've pretty much been hunting and fishing ever since I could walk. Um, started fly fishing when I was probably five years old with my dad and, yeah, bounced around the state of Nevada quite a bit, fishing a lot of small streams and the various rivers and, of course, Pyramid Lake. Mm. Also used to fish Walker a lot back when it was still doing pretty good. Uh, That's a that clap. lake a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a clap. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, That's awesome. so after graduating high school, I ended up coming up here to Oregon to – a small school called Linfield where I got my four-year degree in biology and um, yeah when I was up here I got introduced to fishing for steelhead and salmon and kind of fell in love with that and I've been chasing them ever since. Um, had a short two-year stint where I followed my then fiance out to Kansas City while she finished up a master's program and did some work at a medical research facility and dabbled in some warm water stuff before we Moved back out here four years ago and have been here ever since. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, I mean, look, steelhead and salmon are fascinating. You know, back in the day, I know Taylor did a little bit of research on this, but out out in eastern Nevada, there used to actually be some steelhead habitat where those steelhead would come off the snake and down mm-hmm. into uh, into uh, the Nevada. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Into the Nevada, not the Nevada, yeah. the Nevada. Salmon River mm-hmm. and all that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So where you're working, um, I mean, you're kind of at the headwaters for that, where the salmon traditionally would have came in, I think. I don't know. I don't have a map in front of me. I'm probably blowing it. But <laughs> Yeah, we're not, we're not too far from where those fish would have started their inland journey, because um, all those fish enter there in the Columbia River um, by Astoria and migrate all the way up through idaho and then yeah it would have hit those smaller cribs and trickled down into nevada yeah yeah it's nevada i love it i love it it. and then you're doing so when you say you're a downstream project manager what i mean what does that what does that entail and like how does that like you know support and benefit the um the salmon and steelhead fishery where you're at yeah so um specifically where i'm at here um when I say yeah, downstream fish passage monitoring, um, what we're specifically working on right now is looking at passage for juvenile Chinook salmon, um, specifically spring Chinook here in the upper Willamette. Um, so our work is kind of looking at various damage that can incur as fish pass through certain areas of the river system. Um, we're doing, you know, we're trying to get estimates for fish numbers moving into reservoir complexes and out of reservoir complexes, and then just different conditions and how fish seem to respond. Um, so kind of the goal of our work is to help inform managers and various other entities what what kind of results are coming from the various things they're trying um, to increase the health and abundance of juvenile fish that are actually migrating downstream and out to the ocean. Because um, as you guys know, the salmon face pretty much trials at every stage in life um, from the spawning grounds to hatching and trying to grow big enough to actually start their migration down to the ocean. 
and then getting to the ocean and you know trying to survive in that big pool <laughs> of just chaos out there and then to return right. as adults and go through everything they went through again to try to get back to these spawning grounds um lose a lot of fish along the way so reason why i was really drawn to this kind of project working with the juveniles in particular is that one of my main focuses and things i would like to see is for us to get more fish to the ocean um because in my mind once fish get to the ocean we don't have a whole lot we can do at that point it's a lot harder to make an impact um where when we're up here in this freshwater part of their life stage we can actually do some things and make changes that can have benefits to the fish so um, when this project came up and i got this opportunity it was something i jumped on immediately and it's been an interesting project uh we're running what we call rotary screw traps and it's been an interesting water year for us up here <laughs> oh. been catching a lot of logs along with our fish which is uh interesting when you're out in the field so huh. <laughs> always always fun to see a trap that's supposed to be floating on top of the surface spinning one to two feet underneath <laughs> right so. it, that that would present some challenges so dizzy fish yeah. <laughs> right right <laughs> right dizzy fish yeah. yeah and the valley you're working in uh how do you say it again the uh, uh willamette yeah the willamette i mean if i went up there today and just like said it off the tip of my tongue i'd probably be drowned they're like you're not a local are you because i'd be like william at <laughs> no i've heard a bunch of different pronunciations and mine might not be the correct one so right <laughs> right right yeah. right right and what and what do the populations look like without getting into hard numbers or anything i mean do you think you know project like projects like that you're working on are they making a difference for you know, the population and, you know, the overall health of the fish and, you know, seeing maybe, and I know it's a long-term thing, but, you know, are you seeing, you know, increases in returns, you know, of, of healthy fish or is it too soon to say? It It's too soon to say. Um, we've been kind of in a downward spiral for many years here uh -huh. in the Northwest in general um, with these salmon steelhead populations. And like I said, there's so many factors that come into it. Um, that it's hard to just, you know, point to one thing and say that's the cause. Although people like to be it, you know, they want to blame hatcheries or dams or whatever. But you can always point to another system and say, well, they don't have that issue. Why are their numbers low? Um, but, yeah, we've been pretty low numbers. Um, for example, our winter steel hit up here just a handful of years back. I want to say like 2015, 2016 was an all-time low. Um, this upper basin um, for winter steelhead, we really have three or four main tributaries those fish use and within those tributaries a bunch of spawning streams that they use and i think back in those years we only had like 800 fish roughly return to this upper basin which presents a whole another host of problems from the genetic standpoint but wow um, at least for those there has been some upticks in recent years um, there's been some management decisions that have been made that do seem to at least had some short-term benefit um, there's people yeah, who like them and people who don't usually depends on <laughs> who you ask some of the things they've done. We won't get into the details yep. there, but yeah. <laughs> right. We'll leave it alone. We'll leave yeah, it alone. People are, people are trying. It's just, you know, getting everybody to agree on one, <laughs> on one thing and going that direction. I think um, you see that in a lot of hatchery programs though, regardless of where you're at, you'll have, you'll have one side that agrees on, you know, this is going great or this is the way it should be done. Then you got the other side. That's kind of like, 
no way this sucks and it's the worst program ever type thing. You know, I think you kind of, I mean, we see that again without going to specifics out here. You got, I mean, cause you got all kinds of different hatchery programs out here. You know, you got the LCTs, you got the regular stuff, you know, between California and Nevada and, you know, and you got, you got both sides too. And I'm sure you're familiar with that. Yeah. You know, interesting so. thing with fish is that people get very focused on specific genetic stocks and that's uh-huh. always been interesting to me where you have a species, but then they break each of these little tributaries into its own genetic stock and they treat it like its own individual species, uh-huh. which makes it difficult at times to <laughs> do certain things. Right. And, um, and yeah, no, very, I'm, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because, um, again, without going specifically, but like even out here, um, in both California and Nevada, I'll keep it broad. You know, we do have the same thing with, with tributary tributaries that may have carried, a um specific fish and you'll probably figure out which one i'm talking about but we will we'll leave it unnamed you know like Voldemort. yeah you know mm-hmm. <laughs> he who which goes un- unnamed um uh yeah you know so it, it maybe it's a tributary that carried fish a and fish a at one point in its life and its history used that tributary as a spawning ground and returned to said still water you know or larger body of water to live out the rest of, rest of its life and then come back and, and rinse and repeat, right? But that tributary is now just a tributary. It, it doesn't link up to a a body of water, or it's blocked, or whatever, you know. And, and they try to restore that specific fish, but it it kind of like has a half purpose. You know what I mean? It's like you're catching in its early stage of life, but after that, it doesn't know what to do. So it, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, yeah, and Dylan, um, you know, I know you said there's a lot of factors that obviously play in, right? It could be anything from the amount of water. Um, but I guess what do you see as, like, maybe the top factor in your experience that really kind of you notice a difference affecting the fish, you know, like something that we can control? Yeah, um, well, for me personally, I don't, like I said, I don't know if this, one the, if this is the biggest factor. Yeah, yeah, just the pain. that. One that I seem to seems like you get a lot more bang for your buck out of is just habitat. Um, when yeah, I look yeah. at a lot of these, a lot of these trips here, even just a lot of our coastal streams. I mean, in Oregon, you've got well, and everywhere you've got a whole list of them you could pull up um, and just kind of think about. But we've done a lot to change the actual river environment. If you look at the Willamette River here, we've basically channelized this whole river that used to be a giant delta system coming through. It used to have side channels everywhere. And just a lot more habitat for rearing juvenile fish. And I mean, it's kind of the same way in the Sacramento over there in California near you guys. Um, that's part of that whole, I remember hearing about that rice field program they were doing for juvenile salmon there, where they're trying to give these fish that are out migrating access to these, you know, flooded plains, these rice fields, just because it's a great habitat resource for them, a lot of food availability there and everything else. So, um, at least here in the Willamette, from what I've seen, um, there's been some great restoration projects going on on the McKenzie River specifically. And it was amazing to me how fast these Spring Chinook found that that habitat. I mean, within a year, um, this section of the South Fork McKenzie River, they'd gone in and restored. They did what they called the stage zero restoration. So basically, they took this channelized river and they completely flattened out the floodplain again. So instead of it being, you know, a 20-yard wide piece of river there they spread the water out so now it's encompassing a couple hundred yards or even 500 yards in places just this huge wide area and they brought in a lot of down trees and gravel so the fish had good gravel to spawn in they built these big holding pools so that these fish could come up and find a thermal refuge while they wait to spawn 
Oh. And like I said, within a year, it had the highest red density on the river. It was pretty amazing to see how quick those fish found it and started utilizing it. Um, and I just think the more that we can help fish accomplish these major, you know, life history traits they have here, be it, you know, successful spawning beds, successful hatching and juvenile rearing. Um, like I said, it's all part of getting those fish back to the ocean and then back up here and being successful spawners. Um, I, I really do like to see the habitat work. It's really cool work. And what's nice too, is it benefits more than just the one species. Um, you know, they did that specifically for Chinook, but the trout populations there are very high as well. The bull trout use it kind of everybody. So yeah, uh, had, had bigger benefits all around, you know, no, I, I definitely agree with that. That's, uh, you know, in the Truckee, they're doing a lot of work de-channelizing the Truckee. I think that a lot of rivers got channelized, you know, back in the 20s and stuff. So, you know, that's, yeah. I've definitely noticed a difference in younger trout, you know, since they've kind of been working on the Truckee a little more, too. Yeah, I mean, like with, with the Truckee River, the classic restoration project is the McCarran Ranch area, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that's going on over 10 years. I mean, 12 plus years now, you know, because that, that was all channelized um, out from uh around vista all the way out you know to usa parkway basically in the similar thing and you're probably familiar with this dylan but you know they restored they tried to restore some of the floodplains closer to usa parkway you know with the ponds and stuff out there and then rechannelize the river back to its natural course you know so redirecting it and then you know looking at historical maps and figuring out where the old channel was and then you know uh, carving out some habitat there and you know it's done pretty well it's a it's a it's a tough place to catch fish but i think that's good because it's harboring a lot of great features and and whatnot you know that can hold fish and protect them from everything from from anglers to to wildlife and and all that type the of stuff heat, the and, heat really down there that's what tends to get and the heat mm -hmm. yeah with all the all the trees along the bank there they planted all those cottonwoods and they got you know, uh, natural growth go growing that growing now in that, as you know, with all the trees and, and vegetation around there. Yeah, a lot more shade and it cools it down and so on and so forth. So it's that's very helpful, you know. So we get that. Now here's an important question for you. <laughs> I think. Um, so if you if you're if you're rearing some of these fish or some of these fish are getting reared, like number one, it's like. How do you know? How do you know you're getting those fish back? Are they are they tagged? Are they clipped or something like that? And just curious, do these these little guys have the appearance of a stalker fish? I think we're so used to the the hatchery concrete pool fish here. <laughs> you're like, yep, yep, that one's got a shaggy tail and a blunt nose and a bunch of scars yeah, on the it. Good stalkers here come from yeah. Oregon. <laughs> uh, that's true, they do. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that's pretty typical whenever you have a hatchery raised fish. They, you know, spend a certain amount of time on a concrete raceway. Um, when they come out, they do have, you know, fin damage or you'll have split fins or tattered fins, um, some descaling and stuff like that occasionally. Um, really just depends on the density of the fish in the hatchery and um, how long they've been there. Um, some of these sites, yeah, we can definitely tell. So all of our hatchery fish here that we deal with are clipped or marked in some way. Um, Pretty much in Oregon, any hatchery fish is generally adipose clipped unless they're trying to restore um, like above a dam or something and they're using hatchery stock up there. Then they don't always clip them. A lot of times they'll just put hatchery adults up there and let them do their own thing. Um, but as far as for the wild component, 
there is a fair bit of work that you can do in different ways that people can track them. Um, one of the more common ways to track wild fish is actually kind of a mark recapture. Um, well, they use pit tags. It's called it's a passive integrated transponder. And it's basically this little tiny pill looking thing about 12 millimeters long that um, you can you can tag fish down to 65 millimeters of fork length. Um, essentially, you capture the fish, you anesthetize them, and you use this little syringe to inject this tag into the body cavity. Um, mm. And then that tag lives with the fish. Um, and then here and in various places throughout the Northwest, as you move down these rivers, they've got different pit tag arrays set up. So it's actually this channel spanning um, piece of cable that as that pit tag comes by, it'll ping it and they can see, you know, this uh-huh. fish has a unique identifier. So it's a really great way because you could track fish from the time of capture to every time it passes one of these pit tag arrays, you know that fish, where it went and where it came from. Um, the other thing, too, at a lot of these sites, I guess, you know, specific to this valley, um, a lot of these historic spawning grounds are kind of blocked by various dams or other excuse me, other structures there. So what they'll actually do is they have to trap and haul fish upstream around these barriers that they can't get around naturally anymore. Usually when they do that, they will take a little genetic clip, just a little thin sample that they'll run, and then they could actually do some, um, you know, parentage analysis with that either, you know, for these juveniles coming, you know, as they migrate down, if they get a genetic sample or as they come back up, you know, so if they recapture fish, you know, in four or five years, at these sites, they can actually check the genetics on them and tell if they're, you know, if they're stocked from there. Um, when it comes to hatchery fish, like I said, they got the various clips. A lot of the hatchery fish have what's called a coated wire tag inserted into their snout um, at the hatchery. And uh-huh. that's just another unique identifier. Um, so we actually had one of our, one of my employees was fishing down on the lower, um, lower Columbia a little while back on a tributary there that gets, a few springers come in there kind of for a thermal refuge for a while. They caught one and had a coated wire tag and the person she was fishing with works for in Washington doing a bunch of that stuff. And he ran it and it actually was one of our fish from the South Sandy Am up here that had just stopped in there for a while and made the mistake of biting the right, the wrong line and got itself uh, turned into a nice dinner. So ah. <laughs> um, yeah, we've got different ways to track them like that. And like I said, it's a little limited, but um you know, typical mark recaptures, you know, you're only recapturing or marking a certain percentage of the population. You kind of get that. There's a whole bunch of different ways to figure that out, but um, that's one of the ways they kind of track that and where fish actually move. Wow. That's pretty awesome. And I thought fly fishing was complicated. I think fishing in general is. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the management piece is pretty, it's pretty intense. It's pretty intense. That's, that's cool stuff, man. That's uh. I like it. I like it. I mean, I, and I like sharing this with our audience, you know, because we do sp- speak primarily specifically to our waters and we're used to our management systems and stuff. And, you know, we're, we're inland and landlocked and, you know, there's just different way of doing things here because of that. And you're dealing with a whole different, uh, you're dealing with a whole different beast there, you know, where fish are going ocean run and coming back in much larger waters and much larger numbers. Um, it's pretty, pretty yeah. fascinating. Unlike here, it's like, you know, they grow, it's like a grow and go, right? Like, yep, there they go. And I think, you know, like one of our, you know, biggest tagging programs, like, you know, you know, this, like with Pyramid Lake, you know, fish and wildlife mm-hmm. will, will tag uh, certain species. And that's pretty cool because I've caught in a few um, this past season that have tags and 
Um, as long as I remember to take a picture of the side of the tag that doesn't have the fish and wildlife phone number on it, I know what fish I'm, <laughs> I'm catching. And you can <laughs> you can turn that number in, and they'll you know they'll come back to you and tell you you know uh, you know this is how big it was when it was planted. You know, and this was its quote unquote you know plant day slash birthday if you want to call it that. And you can see growth rates, and it's pretty phenomenal. You know, you're catching fish that are five years old, and they're put in at a pound and a half, two pounds, or something like that, and you're catching. 15 pound, 17 pound fish, you know, five to six years later, that's unreal. Yeah. yeah I, that's I remember <laughs> looking at some of that um, data there from those, those are Floyd tags that you're uh, getting there at Pyramid Lake and some of their yeah. growth rates are just astounding. Yeah. I mean, two inches a month on some fish. It's just unheard of. It's, it's pretty cool. They're a very unique fish down there. Yeah. They're hungry. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. I mean, I think we should talk into the, the fishing origins now of yep. the Dylan Allegra. Yeah. 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 So the fishing. Where where did it all start? I heard something about bullfrogs and buckmaster. Is that where it started? <laughs> <laughs> no, it wouldn't be exactly where it started, but it was definitely pretty early on. Um, like I mentioned earlier, yeah, I've been running around hunting and fishing with my my father ever since I could walk on my own. Um I had a good laugh last time I was home and saw my old pair of coveralls he had from when I was just a little kid. And man, they, I can't even get them over one leg now. But <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, so we started off, like I said, my my whole family, very avid outdoorsmen. Um, and like I said, as far back as I can remember, I was going with my, my dad out duck hunting or fishing. Um, growing up, he used to love to fish Walker Lake. Um, so I spent many a uh, Thanksgiving out there. Wow. He always trolled those old blue fox torpedoes, just top lining. And yeah, we, we did that for years and years. Um, and then, like I said, around four or five years old, he had a, a little fly rod that he'd gotten for me. And he let me practice in the backyard quite a while. And then we started fishing um, a lot of the small streams. We used to go to Smith Creek a lot out there in the Desatoyas. And then Big Creek <laughs> up by Austin. Used to love fishing those little streams. Yeah, and then some of the reservoirs, um, you know, we we go to California, fish Lundy a little bit, or hike into those upper lakes and fly fish those um, Kingston out there. And then, you know, once I started getting a little older, ten or twelve, I could we lived close enough to our dairy that I could jump on a four wheeler and ride ditch bank roads all the way there, and I'd you know mess around on the Carson River trying to catch carp, or I'd go out to some of the little reservoirs around there and fish for whatever i could get to bite um a lot of times it'd be carp or even just little bluegill and stuff on a fly rod and then yeah we had a ranch out on drum road which was right across hayden buckmaster would right across the street and um i went to school of hayden ever since we were little so when i was you know 12 or so i'd be out there irrigating for my dad during the day and i'd run over to hayden's and we'd go either screw around we he had a drainage just behind his house that was full of frogs and we had one all around our place that was full of them so we'd go out there and we started with a little fly rod and a red piece of yarn or something and throw those at bullfrogs and catch them all day long (laughs) 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 a lot of fun but now look now look at you guys now now you're on the uh you're on the fishery side and buckmaster's out there on the guiding side up in in montana doing (laughs) that so yeah yeah, yeah, that's a lot a, different than what I'd originally planned, but you, sometimes <laughs> you just got to follow what you love. So, <laughs> but you're both after the fish, which is which is pretty awesome. Yeah, which is pretty awesome. So, so I heard a little rumor here that that 
that uh, the prodigy owes you a little debt of gratitude. Oh, yeah. <laughs> as far as so he broke the news to me and he's like, oh, yeah, this is the guy that taught me to fish pyramid. And I'm like, what? I'm like, what? The prodigy? The prodigy needed yeah. help? I thought he was just like hatched and just like, like first day, just like crawled to a body of water and put his hands out and fish levitated. No, Dylan, Dylan <laughs> taught me the, taught me how to be a purist. Well, oh, purist. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't say that, but. <laughs> a sinking line purist. A sinking line purist. Is that right? Is that right? That's, that's pretty much the only way I fish pyramid i it's probably just my own impatience i can't sit there and watch my my indicator float for more than a minute or two before i get bored and have to start screwing around with it and i just figure it's better for me to throw a heavy line and pretend to be active <laughs> right 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 so you're, you're a you're a uh, well that's cool i mean that's the old school way to do it and i mean yeah, it's still it's still an effective way but what, what was your go-to or what is still your go-to because i know you haven't you haven't necessarily left it behind. I mean, what's what's your go-to out there? Yeah, well, like I said, I, I still fish the heavy sinking line like I always have. And it's kind of funny you mentioned it's an old-school way because I, I learned it from a very old-school guy named Gary Dean uh-huh. um, in, in Fallon. And he fished Pyramid Lake for a long, long time. And that's the only way he would fish it, too. Um, heavy line, that's where I actually learned all the patterns that I tied out there for him. As he taught me how to tie flies when I was probably 10. Oh wow! And kind of introduced us to all that, and that's some of the stuff I tried to pass to Taylor. And I've never used anything really fancy out there. Um, my whole goal is always just to be able to get a line to the bottom. And then, as far as flies, my my go to is a uh, purple and black woolly worm, uh-huh. or a pink bodied woolly worm with white hackle and a white tail. Oh wow! That's pretty much all I fish out there. You know, I'll switch it up sometimes. I'll get crazy and throw chartreuse on or something, but. In general, if I'm out there fishing pyramid, I've always got one of those two colors on my line. Wow. And it's just been a standby for us for years out there. Um, nice. I've, yeah, I've messed around with different things. As Taylor's seen, we, we sometimes like to dink around on our vices and <laughs> make these huge articulated monstrosities that you can't really cast. And, you know, sure. still catch fish. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, I always have a box full of those. Those woolly worms. Whenever I go, Dylan, so. Dylan is a fishy, fishy guy. Yeah, well, that's what I heard, and I'm I'm glad you used like the woolly worms. There's something about those. So, you know, a lot of folks use like a standard, like a woolly booger or woolly booger type pattern on the streamer. Um, I've kind of developed my own little thing and kind of did it on my own as far as just like I seen what's out there, kind of got this concept, and my whole thing was about making a lot of commotion and pushing water, you know, when I'm, when I'm ripping those things and what I've noticed and what I find interesting about the fact that you use a woolly worm is the fact that it's usually, I mean, there, I mean, compared to like a woolly booger a little bit, depending on how you build those bodies, they just, they, they move a lot of water, right? You got a lot of hackle on there, usually with a really small tail. If I'm picturing the woolly worm, right. The ones that got mm-hmm. in my box, and those seem to work really well, especially like in mud lines, you know, or if you're competing against everyone in the world that has their Sportsman's Warehouse or Cabela's or whatever, Shields brand, um, you know, wor- or not Willy Worms, but Willy Boogers or whatever. Um, but yeah, that whole thing with pushing water and making noise under the water seems to pick up on those laterals, on those predatory fish and 
they just react. You know, it was a very reactive, predatory fish. And um, kudos to you, man. Early, figuring it out and learning at a young age. It's kind of like you get into this thing where you get those old timers out there and they kind of fade away, right? They stop fishing it and their knowledge was passed on in a limited basis to a limited amount of people. And now what I'm seeing out there is people getting into fish um, using some of the older methods, but they're coming off as new methods, right? Like, oh, yeah. dude, you got to try this. <laughs> And you're like, oh, okay, why? Well, it does this, this, and this. And you're like, huh. And then when I hear it from guys like you, you know, or you read back in time, well, that's what they're using like 20 years ago, you know, or maybe further back, you know, that's what worked, you know. So that's pretty awesome. And then now being a biologist, now you got this keen awareness, you know, or in the, you know, in the fisheries field, you got this keen awareness of, you know, how fish respond and react and what, what, what gets their attention. So you got a little bit of an advantage there, I think. I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes. Depends <laughs> I don't on the know. day. I don't know. Or you just bring Taylor with you and you just let him fish till he catches fish. What are you using? And then you just do that. Oh, it's it's always <laughs> a very competitive time with me and Dylan. Yeah, it's a, sometimes it's not what you're using. It's how you use it, huh, Taylor? It, it is. <laughs> it does. But my best story from a pyramid, oh, Taylor's probably not going to like this one. Um, but he, he just got his yeah brand new fly rod that his dad i think built for him isn't that right taylor it is and i knew yep. it was a story <laughs> yeah and i just had this one we'd been fishing <laughs> out there most of the day and it'd been a pretty slow day and you know we, i'd finally convinced him he was fishing the same way i was on a heavy sinking line so we'd both just cast out we're sitting there bs and i was asking about his fish but he goes oh you want to try this i was like sure i'll try it and he's like yeah i haven't even caught a fish on it yet Oh no! He shouldn't have said those magic words because I know more than pulled on the line twice and caught one. And <laughs> the worst part is, is I even casted it. Oh, <laughs> even better! Yeah, like I said, all we did is we switched rods. I took two strips. Oh my god! Oh <laughs> my god! <laughs> yeah, it's the, the one thing I could hold against the prodigy here is I can usually beat him at Pyramid Lake, but if we get on the trucky, it's it's game over. I just get frustrated watching him rip fish out of every spot. Yeah, yeah, it's it's sure you're aware. Yeah, I try I try to increase his focus this year on the lake, but it was a little tough. It was a challenging year, and uh, it was uh, you know, spendy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's spendy, but you know, it, it is spendy. But your return is great, you know. And once you get it figured out, you got to put a little bit into it to get something out of it. You know, if it was easy, it wouldn't be worth it, right, bud? So you know, <laughs> yeah. But he goes out there, he gets them. That's the thing. Every time you gone out there, you know, we eventually. Find something, you know, somewhere and, um, you know, admire that adventurous spirit that he has out there. It's just like he, he he knows it well enough to where he knows how to find the fish without, you know, uh, wasting a day specifically. You know, he won't burn too much time on one section. Whereas I'm the opposite. If I, if I move twice, you're lucky. Well, I've known to move around, but. You know, when you finally find them, you're like, dang it, why didn't I go here first? Because that's what <laughs> I told myself to go here first, but I didn't because I thought it was going to suck. And it's the place that works, you know. But, um, yeah, that's awesome. So I got a question for you. So you, you got into the steelhead and salmon game. Um, and, you know, how did Pyramid tune you up for that? Like when you got into those fish up there, you know, what, what, what are your fishing styles up there? And, you know, just to compare notes, you know, for those that are – Maybe haven't had a lot of experience on the salmon and steelhead, but maybe have a lot of experience on pyramid. Um, you know, how would you compare the two fisheries and the fight of the fish and the techniques going after them? Yeah, well, like I said, my fur 
I've been trying to figure out these salmon steelhead now ever since I started going up here to school, and I'm I'm starting to get to where I feel like I have some idea of what I'm doing most days uh-huh. out there. And if there's fish in the river, I can usually find something. Um, but one of the challenges I've really come across is, like I said, these kind of low fish years, trying new techniques up here is I, I just don't know if I'm not doing it right or if there's just no fish in the river. You know, right. that's been it's a mental game a lot of days here. But as far as similarities between um, pyramid and fishing up here is I guess I would mostly have to look for between salmon and um, the pyramid cutthroats because all my experience has been fishing for them in the lake. Yeah. Um, which is kind of like fishing for salmon out here in the bays. Um, and the one one way that actually seems to work pretty well out here for salmon too is fishing them on a heavy sinking line just like I do at Pyramid. Um, the flies change a little bit depending on the species you're looking for. Oh. But depending on where you're at in the tidewater, it can be a very effective way to go after them. Um, either using little comet flies or various bait fish imitations. Um, that's really kind of the one place where your salmon are still looking for a meal um, before they enter the fresh water and they quit eating. So it, it can be quite productive out there. And, and this last year, especially, um, we had a really good coho run for how it's been in recent years. They actually had some wild retention on some of these rivers up here because they had enough numbers for it. And man, there were some spectacular days on on the bays here in Oregon. I had a day out on the Nehalem River this year where we landed 20 fish, three guys. Wow. Um, which for me in my little drift boat trolling the bay or throwing, you know, throwing flies or jigs or whatever we want to at them, it was pretty spectacular. Um, and then as far as the fish fight, those, those cutthroats will give you a, a run for your money, but it's a very different kind of fight i guess they're more in my mind kind of like a uh, a chinook salmon or king salmon is you get those big fish at pyramid they just like to kind of dog you and pull you down yeah make their runs and they like to stay stay deep occasionally you get one that comes up to the top and tries to give you the death rolls um, but that's exactly how these king salmon are you hook them and they just die for the bottom and just it's a game of tug of war um where meanwhile you hook into these coho and they'll come to the surface and they'll flip around and do a bunch of runs and all these acrobatics and it's just, it's a different kind of fight. It's really exciting. Um, I've, I've very much fell in love with these, uh, coho salmon up here just because of the, they're a lot more aggressive and will take a variety of different flies or lures or jigs or, you know, just a bunch of different presentations and the water they sit in is just so unique. When they come into the river, I always tell people when they go with me and we're, throwing big twitching jigs or whatnot that you just pretend you're bass fishing for salmon right now as you look for the slow water you look for wood structure on the sides of the river and that's where they'll be they'll be tucked up under a log or on an eddy line or you know just all these weird spots not your typical salmon holes that i always thought of um when i was learning the fish here so interesting yeah because i always try to find alignments between the species just because with uh, that you know, that, that, that LCT being in such a huge body of water. And then in its past, that body of water was much bigger, you know, and then it had the huge river access with the Truckee. Um, you know, it was basically a, a landlocked salmon, right? I yeah, mean, it, oh. it, it behaved, you know, and basically it had a large inland ocean to deal with. And I've, you know, in studying the fish, um, I'm interested in just hearing from you. That's why I'm asking these questions and maybe for some Pyramid Lake anglers, you know, the similarities between the species, you know, even though one's ocean run and one's not, I've seen a lot of similarities. Like in fact, with 
the LCT to like some behaviors with like Atlantic salmon, you know, cause like with the Atlantics you're getting like the LCTs, you know, they, they spawn and, but then they'll return. Right. Like an Atlantic mm-hmm. and how they turn on and off. I mean, they could be right under your nose one day, you know, especially when they get close to spawn and just like the Atlantics, sometimes as they come in, they'll be aggressive but when they're in those prime spots in that prime water, you're like, oh, we're going to knock them dead. Dude, you can't, you, can't, you can't hit them on the head hard enough, you know, to get them to react. And you're like, what's going on here? And you're like, huh, man, I've read about other species that, that do this as well. And, oh, what are they? You know, and they're, they're in that salmon family. So it's interesting. That, that's a cool comparison. So, yeah, and and I was kinda, I've, yeah. yeah, I've talked with Taylor about this, too, with those Lahontan cutthroats. I mean, they, they basically are just functioning as the salmon where they're using pyramid lake as their their ocean rearing you know that's where majority of their food source is but they're coming into these the truckee river and those tributaries to spawn because that's where their habitat for for that is it's the same very similar life histories i mean you've got very similar i guess a steelhead or something like that where you've got Mm. um, these trout that go up there and they're spawning and then out of those fish that you know, are successful and actually hatch. You've got some that just stay in the river and decide, you know, I'm just going to live my life here. And right. you've got a proportion that says, nope, we're going to head down to the big water and try to make it really big. Um, and that's, right. you know, we see it over here too. So like where I'm at in the Willamette Valley, um, like I say, and so on this side of the, the Cascades, what we generally see is a lot more of our salmon and trout populations have this anadromy component. That's that migration to the big salt water. Um, as part of their life cycle and yeah. we think a lot of the reason for that is just resource availability these fish over here are streams on this side of the the hill like i said are quote unquote too clean as in there's not a whole lot of bug life compared to the streams on the other side of the cascades so when these little fish are growing up and trying to make this decision oh what do i want to do with my life what do i want to be when i grow up do i want to be a trout that stays here in the the river and live my life here or do i want to roll the dice and go out to the ocean and see how big i can get and on this side of the hill we get a lot more fish that seem to roll the dice and go out to the ocean and um, then try to come back as adults where like i said you go to the other side of the cascades here in oregon you get some really phenomenal trout streams where you got some big trout and that's just because they decided to stay there because they had enough food to do it um and these lahontan cutthroats little bit of the same way like you're saying trying to make those comparisons between species and i know taylor has been trying to find some in the river on occasion and mm-hmm. i think we, we've chatted about kind of how what i look for when i'm looking for steelhead because in their life history it's basically the same component they're migrating up river to try to find a spawning ground just like the steelhead are here so i think need to chat with him some more and see what he's found out but imagine there's probably a lot of similarities in how they behave and what they do as they're moving upstream yeah, no, they're, uh, you know, I mean, you fish salmon way more than I have, but, you know, finding that froggish water, you know, sometimes you find them holding there. Um, but like Nico said, you know, hitting them on the head or something there, you know, you'll see 10, 20 fish in there, but yeah, and sometimes it, they don't turn on. Yeah, and the limiting factor here is they don't have that free run, you know, because they got to pass you know, two dams, they got to pass uh, Marble and Numana, and then they make their way up to Derby. And then they're they're released in certain numbers, right? So X amount will make it to each dam, and then X amount are passed over, you know. So, you know, you got long stretches of river, you know, you got that long, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I mean, you got, you know, just, just to make it into, you know, Nevada waters, 
um, or Nevada regulated waters. It's it's quite a trip. And, you know, may, even if they say if they let go, I'm just throwing out a number here. If they make it past the second dam and they throw 500 out, well, 500 over, you know, how many miles that might be up to Derby Dam. Um, let's say it's 12 miles or something. <laughs> 500 fish disappear. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. like they just, they start, you know, so like the, the hunt for them is kind of like. And so, a lot of it's still channelized, so they don't have a lot of. That's right. Know, a lot of good holding water to kind of get catch their breath sometimes even. Right, yeah. So basically, it's kind of a walking mission here where basically you just set foot and you, you look for the activity versus, I mean, you'll have to fish for them. But there's there's telltale things. I know Taylor's found that where he finds, you know, he finds finning. He actually physically sees them or he sees a red or something like that. So you could, you could. um visually target them versus i think they're in this stretch let's fish it yeah it's kind of like if you don't see them they're not there yeah right you see that red and then you're like well there's one here on a red not gonna fish for them obviously but there's probably more out in the faster water next to them or behind them eating eggs or yeah yeah possibly and then here i'm gonna circle back to one thing before we segue into burrito land um you said he had a chance to fish the walker so when you're fishing the um walker lake right Mm mm-hmm that's back when it had LCTs in it, I imagine, yeah? Yes, yeah, it was. Wow. Um, back before the salinity got too high and they had too high of die-off when they were stocking fish in there to continue doing it. Um, and, yeah, we fished for them the same way that we would at, at Pyramid. It was it was great. Um, you get some, you know, pretty nice-sized fish, not, not always to the size that you find them at Pyramid, but we'd catch 10-pounders occasionally. Um, and yeah, we'd either flat line with those torpedo spoons or we would actually ladder fish just like we do at Pyramid. Wow. Wow. That's remarkable to think of that. Like <laughs> knowing that lake was like that at one time. And it's it's funny. We, I was up at last week. We took a quick trip up to Twin Lakes. Uh, we took a quick lunch break on a guide trip. We're, we're doing the East Walker. So we had the heat of the day. We went to town, had lunch, and then we, we used the rest of the heat of the day to go look at Twin Lakes. And that thing is both of them are full, like above above rim, you know, and then, you know, that's flowing down through Robinson and whatnot into Bridgeport Reservoir, which is looking all right, you know, then good flows out of the East Walker and just wonderful flows out of the West Walker. It's st- I mean, it's still in melt-off right now, believe it or not. The West Walker is still moving really, really quick, uh, still off-color, muddy brown, you know, as of a couple of days ago. And you look at Topaz Lake, and that's topped off. You know, and then some, you know, and then you got all that being released to the irrigation district. You're like, man, I wish just some of that would make it down to Walker <laughs> and thin it out a little bit, you know, <laughs> get it back to where it was at. But that's cool. You've had the chance to fish that. So, so, all right, segue time. We're changing direction. We're going to talk burritos, sir. I hope you're ready for this. Mm-hmm. I'm always ready for burritos. Yeah. As we're sitting here next to a tub of barbecue sauce from, Manor Market and Bishop. I don't know if you're familiar with Manor Market, but they got this special barbecue sauce um, that they only make on occasion. And I don't even think it's announced. Like, they just make it, like, on whims or when the guy feels like it in these large batches. And my my friend lives, well, he grew up down there, and he's visiting his mom, and um, he has a tub sitting here on the table for us of this precious, precious Manor's own barbecue sauce. Sorry, I got lost in it. Okay, back to burritos. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, a little plug for Manor Market there in Bishop. Um, anyway, all right. So, Oregon, burritos. 
what's happening up there? Do you have a favorite? And be as descriptive as possible. I'm grading you on this. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do have a favorite spot here in the town I'm living in in Albany. It's a little place called Tacos El Machine. And what I what I love about oh, it is when it first opened up, it was a yeah, very small little shop. And it's since grown a little bit. But they had all the different meats that I love. Um, you could always go and they always have tripas. They have la lengua. They have cabeza. Um, I believe a lot of times they even have buche. They have, so they have all that good stuff, and it's just it's fantastic. But what really sold me at this place was the the hot sauces that they had. So okay. you know, pre-COVID, they always had a nice little bar set up where you could go through the whole assortment. There's only one I ever needed, and it was it's it's this white serrano hot sauce, okay. and it absolutely just makes it the best burrito I've ever had. Um, I can't figure out what's in the sauce. There's a lot of garlic and a bunch of different flavors. And of course it's their secret sauce. So they won't tell me, but if they give it to me in the squeeze bottle and I have a burrito, I will probably go through that entire squeeze bottle eating that burrito. Um, and I, I really like to pair it with the tripas, especially, you know, they get that nice little crisp on the tripas there along with all the other parts of the burrito and oh, smother it in that sauce. And, you're sweating, sweating the deaths by the end of it, but you down a couple jarritos and you're, you're just plenty happy. All right, so I'm going through the burrito scorecard right here. If yeah, I've written everything. I've just no, well, no, sauce. no. I'll help you out here. That's, I mean, it's fine. Um, <laughs> and so, in, in in which municipality or city is Tacos All Machine located? In which city? In yeah, Albany, Oregon. Okay. All right. Okay, Albany, Oregon. Plus two points. Okay. Um, I'm making the points up as we go. Um, in the white Serrano hot sauce. Yeah, that's awesome. And then what's your, what's your, uh, what's your meat of choice? I know you mentioned a few there, but if you had the one yeah. go-to, what is your meat of choice? I have the one go-to. I always go for tree pots. Interesting. Okay. That is unique. No one has brought that up and I'm proud of you for bringing it up um, because that's very, very authentic extremely authentic and now inside said containment vessel aka known as tortilla and we'll back up to that in a second what mm-hmm. would you find upon biting into the burrito what what other components are we going to find inside this burrito what else you inside, got in there inside this burrito uh-huh. the burritos usually is rice and beans okay a little bit of lettuce a lot of onions and there's okay. cilantro um, and cilantro. then they always have the options you can add there at their, usually their condiment bar. They always had the, the onions in the slow cooker with the jalapenos. Always huh. really good. And they had a lot of, they always have a lot of radishes available as well, which I always like to mix in to kind of freshen things up as you go through. Mm. Um, like I said, I oftentimes there, I bounce between the, the tacos and the burritos because common problem I have is just choosing one meat. Oh, sure. Yeah, you that's know, a big so, problem. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm yeah. usually a pretty big eater, so I can usually get both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Burrito yeah. and pair that with three tacos. But yeah, yeah. And you know what? You're not alone in this. I mean, that's the thing when you're like, oh, I want the cheap boss. But then you're like, well, what else? I'm really, I'm kind of lengua today. Or I, I was going to say that. You know, you know just, yeah. there's too many options. Yeah, I'm feeling lengua. Like, what do I do? So you could go for. The full meal option with the tripas, uh, and then go for the dessert option with the lengua. 
in a taco yeah. maybe yeah that's very reminiscent of what i remember taylor and i some of our early pyramid trips we'd always stop in fernley uh-huh. uh, one of our little burrito places there and uh you know often we'd order so much food that they felt bad and they'd give us something at one time they gave us a bunch of like coffee mugs or something because i think typical fashion taylor and i ordered multiple burritos and taylor had to get his torta and all this other stuff so you gotta, yeah. gotta sample a lot. <laughs> yeah, Nico. Nico's figured out I can't eat when we're fishing. I go into either fish mode or eat mode. Oh yeah, you'd be yeah. proud. We've made some progress with Taylor. We've actually gotten him to um, pull off a few times. There's a few force feeding sessions, like a baby, where he won't stop fishing. Yeah. You have to, you have to like touch the food to his lips. Yeah, and you then, know, I, I know where he might have gotten that because I tend uh, to have that same problem. Really, <laughs> really. So I'm a big proponent of. Stop what the hell you're doing. Get off the damn water and eat uh, because I don't want to deal with bitchy anglers and all your whining because we whine and cry and bitch as it is. You yeah, know. Yeah, this was something I figured out when I was in college. <laughs> when I was a junior in college, I got a drift boat and I started uh-huh. floating the rivers. And, you know, I was a college kid, so I didn't have anybody there telling me to do stuff. But I thought it'd be good, you know, and I, you know, knew I was going to be out on the water starting at daylight and I was probably going to be there till dark. Sure. So I went and I packed myself a, you know, nice lunch and whatnot. And I remember like second or third trip doing it. I'm driving home and it's like seven, eight o'clock at night. And I go, Oh yeah, I packed myself a lunch. I should probably eat that (laughs) or at the least drink some water. Yeah. (laughs) It's just like you get out in the river sometimes and Taylor's very much this way. He just gets so focused on what he's doing. And that's, probably part of the reason why we call Taylor the prodigy is he does just hyper focus in on what he's doing and he does pays attention to little details. Yeah. We're usually in trouble. We put him in a float tube on still water. Cause it's like, I don't feel like caddying food out to him, but <laughs> if it comes down to it. I will, because I know then he'll just kick more and he'll be in a better mood and he thinks better and he catches better. You know, run away. You run away. He kick away. I'm going over here. Like, no, stop. <laughs> just saw a rise. I got to get to it. <laughs> um, all right. So back, uh, back to the tortilla. Um, mm-hmm. I need a descriptive on this. So I imagine on the burrito, we're using some type of flour tortilla. So mm-hmm. it's kind of common denominator. Now, now is that, is that tortilla getting like toasted on a flat top after it's rolled or what, what does that look like? It is. It's getting toasted okay. on the flat top, uh, lightly okay. toasted, just enough to give it a slight brown Okay. on the edges. It's not a heavy toast. Right. That's so you don't get that heavy crunch, but you definitely get a little bit of added texture there. Handmade or from a bag? Mm. That's Hard what I'm not. That's not what I'm sure of here. When yeah. I was in Kansas City, there was a place. It was a tortilleria I used to go to, and you could definitely tell. Mm-hmm. And made, but here I'm it's, not so sure. It's tough sometimes because some of these mm-hmm. these uh, burrito stands and taco joints, they'll if they don't make it, they might be buying it from yeah. a location that makes them. You know, so it's that, that's a hit and miss one. It's cool if they make them there, but you know, mm-hmm. if not, you know, what do you do? So yeah. here, last last question on the. Um, on the tortilla, uh, let's say you get it, it's wrapped up, and you unwrap it. Is there any, like, degree of transparency? Meaning maybe some of the goodness on the inside is kind of soaked through a little bit. It's not breaking through, but it's it's got enough liquid that it's starting to permeate the inside shell of the tortilla. Um, it's almost like close to mm-hmm. viewing window status we can't quite make it out it's like but a foggy window it's like a really foggy window on a cold yeah, winter day 
It definitely tell it's absorbed a little bit there, but uh-huh. it's not enough to have any indication from the outside or any feel if you're holding the burrito there. So it's strength. just, yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely retained its strength, but yeah. it's holding everything in, but it does have a little bit there. Like if you just take a bite of tortilla at the end, you'll still get the essence and the flavor of what was in the burrito there. Right. And do you think it's pretty tightly wrapped? Would it, would it pass like a low altitude drop test? You know, maybe oh, yeah. like from like from three to four feet, if it hit the ground, it would still it would like if it's still in its wrapper, would it still hold? It wouldn't burst. Oh yeah, it's not it's gonna okay. burst. It's not gonna unwrap. Not gonna burst. Yet. Okay. There's not All a right. there's not a lot of extra over wraps either. You know, okay. like that either when you've got you know sections of your your burrito that have multiple layers of that tortilla there. Yeah, and that no, that's a key thing too. Like, uh, let's get real here. Uh, yeah, let's get real. You know, you don't want too much tortilla in a bite, but you know. There's only one thing worse than an overwrap, and that's an underwrap. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you don't want it to yeah. fall apart. Yeah, I mean, you got an underwrap, and let's say you're on the move, right? Let, let's use an example. Uh, let's play it safe here. Like you're not in your car. Like you, 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 you got that burrito, and you're in your drift boat, right? Mm-hmm. And you're like burrito time, and you're still moving, so you're, you're spacing this out. You're like. Okay, I yeah, got some dead. Take, I got taking some, bites between strokes on the oars, you know. You that, or you got some dead water. Quick. Yeah, you got yeah. some dead water. So maybe you have like two to three minutes to get into that burrito, and if you have an underwrap, that's a problem. It's a safety concern. No, yeah, very no, much. No, it's so. a true. It's safety concern because now you're getting burrito, you know, burrito particles on the floor. You can have a slip and fall. You can send somebody overboard. Okay. You know, and who's and who's liable for that? Well, in California, well, in California, you'd be surprised. (laughs) You know, I I mean, I don't know what the legalities are, but I don't know. You might want to take out a policy that includes, you know, an underwrap burrito. Um, Yeah, exactly. Comes if you have too oily of a burrito either, well, I don't know what the rider for that. Yeah, I don't know what the rider for that would cost, but we could ask Buckmaster. He's an insurance guy. That's true. Right, right. He sells tractor insurance. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I I like to call him. I hope he listens to this. I like to call him and just. Like crank call him and ask if he's got insurance. Like I want to insure my Mahindra or my Minkota, you know, or my John Deere, you know. Yeah. And just be like, be like, dude, shut the hell up. Um. <laughs> I'm in insurance mode. I'm not in fishing mode. Right. No right. onions here. Well, I'll ask him about the burrito writer and it's something maybe he could come out with and, and maybe he could make a couple bucks on it. You know, we want to help yeah. out the Buckmaster. Yeah. Yeah, that's important. You know. So, well, you know what. You got a passing score here. I'll add it up at some point, but this is all high marks. And I think I think we're in the I don't know, we're in the high A range. The impressive factor, because me and Dylan have eaten many burritos together, mm-hmm. was many. the mention of the small amount of lettuce because it's not appreciated during the burrito. Yeah. But it's the processing, right? It's the whole process mm-hmm. of yeah. that burrito, just like the salmon, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you don't when it goes out of the sea, gonna have a bad yeah. time. Well, I usually yeah. here's my thing. I'm kind of a purist and and I kind of give I tend to give ne- negative marks. Um, you know, to rice and beans and lettuce in a burrito. <laughs> you know, nothing screams white guy more than rice mm-hmm. and beans and lettuce in a burrito. But when placed appropriately and in traditional methods, um, it, it's nullified. It's nullified. So I let that, I let that pass. You know, because it sounds like everything's going on right here. So I trust, I trust what's happening here. You know, so we'll, we'll give a, we'll give a, a positive nod to. Uh, tacos all machine yes and you do have homework um you need to figure out that white sauce <laughs> i've been trying so, it. oh you can send it in 
Yeah, you can send it into Bearfish Laboratories. I'll send you the uh, mailing address later, and we will analyze it for you. Perfect. Yeah, I'll have to yeah. have Taylor you come up here and sample it a little bit yourself, too, to make sure that there's no changes in the shipping process. I know. I kind of want to. <laughs> we need to go up and fish East Lake up there. Oh. It's a good midway point. Yeah. That's where the you. cabins are. Isn't there cabins there? Yeah, there's a little resort. Cabins. Yeah, it's a cool lake. Yeah, well, if you do, yeah, do make it up this way, I've got a new raft on order that needs to test out some of the bigger runs on the McKenzie River here. Ooh. You guys can try to try your hand at some of those McKenzie River red sides. See how uh-huh. that goes, and we'll do a little splash and giggles through some of the bigger rapids, too. So I, I've heard of those. I think we got some of those jumbled up in the Truckee River. <laughs> they've, they've managed to like plant every style of trout in the river, like doing our research on it. There's like everything in here. So like when you Frank get and fish, Frank and fish. So yeah, when you get these hybrids, you're like, it's funny. Cause like we just recently did a podcast with Steve Shala. Um, and he's got a cool website, fly fishing this year. He's been mm-hmm. working on for 20 plus years and he's a big golden trout fan. Um, and, and chases golden trout. And he showed, uh, he sent me a PowerPoint slide of his presentation. He has this huge slide and presentation. He does a fly fishing groups. It's really fascinating. Anyway, he had a diagram um, and description of the uh, the Kern River Rainbow, and I looked at it and I'm like, yeah, I think those are in the Truckee too, because <laughs> <laughs> he's like, because they 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 have lineage to uh, I might be wrong on this, but I think they have lineage to the uh, uh, what's that um, uh, McLeod to the McLeod, mm-hmm. and then also I read some mentions about some Mackenzies coming down here um, way long ago, like late 1800s, early 1900s. So there's just a bit of everything because you, if you look like at a Kern or a, a McLeod or like especially the Kern, they have the um, like the fine peppered spots on them and stuff. Yeah. And you look some of our trout and they're fine peppered, you know, with a big bright red band. It's all these mixes. And you're like, dude, I don't even know what this is. But, just, yeah, yeah there's so many varieties of rainbow that it gets very muddled very quickly. And then you've got all the hybridization with the cutthroats and. Oh yeah, uh, we've been coming through, coming across a bunch of those these cut bows up oh, here, yeah. and you you get a wide range where some of them look really, really kind of like an omicus a rainbow, and you got a lot that look just super cutthroaty, but they've got these other features, and it's, it's interesting to see. Nice, nice. Well, awesome, man. I, I appreciate having you on the podcast and 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 sharing the uh, the burrito story, and we talked about other stuff, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, we talked about salmon, steelhead, and all that <laughs> stuff. But yeah, I got lots in the burritos. So I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, we we appreciate the work you're doing up there. We we appreciate you taking the time to share uh, what you've been doing and and you know what it means for the fishery program up there for salmon and steelhead and and how it indirectly you know we indirectly correlated it with our fisheries here to learn a little bit more about what we fish for and hopefully we some of our listeners if they're not already fans of salmon and steelhead. Maybe one day they'll make their way up there and, and fish some of your water and see yeah, what that's all about. Definitely worth a trip. It's a whole whole different world up here than what we grew up with in Nevada. Um, very, very interesting. I've Yeah, I like to see the differences here. Fishing these coastal streams versus the, the desert ones. And there's a lot of similarities between the fish and a lot of differences. Just nice to challenge yourself with something new every now and then, too. Right, right. Super awesome. Definitely. Yeah. Taylor's excited. Yeah, Dylan, and 
you mentioned you might need some help next season for people curious about, uh, you know, getting into some fishery stuff, you know, and helping out the, um, the Oregon fisheries. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do fully expect to be needing to hire more crew for this upcoming season. Um, our peak season generally starts in January and runs through June. Um, and with more more monitoring work coming up, um, it's a great opportunity if people are looking to get some experience just with some different um, survey methods and kind of get a peek into this world of fish monitoring and conservation. So, yeah, if you uh, were to search on, I think, the Texas A&M Fisheries and Wildlife Sciences job board um, for um, fish monitoring projects in the Willamette Valley, ours ought to prop, pop up um like i said it's a it's a position for rotary screw trap monitoring um so if you check there and i think we've also listed on indeed um but yeah we will have opportunities coming up like i said for sure in january and we might even have something coming up earlier than that so um, cool yeah is there like a main website um you know that leads directly to that job posting or is that the texas a&m oh yeah, like texas a&m dot com or yeah Okay. Yeah, so yeah, Texas A&M, yeah, if you search job board at, at Texas A&M University, it'll pull up. It's their big fisheries and wildlife science. And just for anybody looking for this kind of work anywhere in the country, really, that is the main job board um, to look into, um, especially if you, you know, if you know any younger people that are looking to get experience. Um, that's a great website. Um, AmeriCorps posts there for various conservation type work. Um, a lot of state agencies, as well as private industry posts there and i mean it's anything from fisheries science work to habitat to wildlife sciences um it it covers pretty much everything and it's uh, a job board i very strongly recommend to anybody who's interested in this type of work or even looking for volunteer opportunities in their area for this kind of thing um especially you you anglers out there um it's always great check in with your local um departments and see if they need help perhaps doing red surveys or various things like that because i think um you know if you love fish you'd love being out there doing these various survey methods and looking for fish um, i've always greatly enjoyed doing red surveys i think it's something everybody should do because it gives you a lot better understanding of what's going on out there and some of the needs these fish have um so yeah that'd be a great thing too if i can get taylor up here someday i'll have to take him out and show him what those look like so cool <laughs> sure hey when and when you say when you say anglers i gotta hit a button here it's a mm-hmm. fun one so does that disqualify euro anglers <laughs> what's that you broke up just a little bit there oh no i said it's like when when you say <laughs> <laughs> when you say anglers we said no politics <laughs> does that does that disqualify does that disqualify euro nymphers you don't have to answer that so (laughs) you know we can all just use that just a joke (laughs) we all love the fish i know i like to have fun with that so anyway all right buddy well hey it was great to have you on i appreciate you taking the time and uh yeah this was a great podcast and uh and maybe we can link up here in the future and either get up there we could do another podcast talk a little bit more about the salmon and steelhead but i appreciate your time buddy yeah thanks guys it was great chatting with you yeah thanks dylan no problem and there you go there's another episode of burritos breaks and flies and until next time tight lines
Don't know why. 